Is there sound? There's sound. Okay, part of the angelic conflict. I left the house wearing a pair of glasses, and I got here, and I walked in here, and I don't have them. So, of course, it would be some, a night when I have to read something. So we're going to stumble through this. Hmm? I don't think yours will work, Alan. Thanks. We have the PowerPoint, and most of that will will work. Well, if I strain enough, maybe I can read this. Let's uh, go ahead and have a word of prayer. And any Pentecostals here can pray for the healing of my eyes. <laughs> but if you do, don't admit to it. Uh, let's pray. Have a few moments of silent prayer in case uh, anybody needs to use First John 1.9. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to study your word, to be refreshed by the truth, to recognize that your word gives us absolute truth and that your word is a complete and consistent expression of your viewpoint on all categories of life. Now, Father, as we study these things this evening, we pray that you would challenge us with them, that we might have a greater understanding of your grace, a greater understanding of what it is to be grace-oriented. And, Father, we pray that you would... Uh, continue to provide for this church. We thank you for the way you have provided. We pray especially for the provision of a building, a place that will more adequately meet our needs and allow us to to uh, carry on some other ministries. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have even briefly watched the news or even turned on a television over the last week, You have noticed that the Papa has passed away. And it just seems that nothing else is going on in the world. Well, there's a man that is a graduate of Dallas Seminary by the name of Mike Gendron. And Mike uh, has an interesting ministry. It's called Proclaiming the Gospel. And you can probably look it up on the web. His last name is Gendron, spelled with a G, G G-E-N-D-R-O-N. And Mike has a lot of good materials. In fact, I've ordered some tracks from him. Uh, he was uh, in the uh, Roman Catholic Church for many years until he was in his mid-30s, and then he learned about the grace of God. He went to Dallas Seminary, and he has an evangelistic ministry to Catholics and former Catholics. And I had him come up to uh, Preston City one time to... Uh, do a short seminar because nearly everybody in Preston City was either former Catholic or everybody in their family was former Catholic. You may not know it, but if you cross the border into Rhode Island, which was 11 miles from Preston City, the population becomes 90% Roman Catholic. So those areas, especially eastern Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and some areas of Connecticut are very heavily uh, Roman Catholic. So uh, everybody appreciated uh, a lot that he had to say, we discovered, after checking him out through many mutual friends, we discovered that he was a soft, had a soft lordship position on the gospel. So you just have to factor that in and recognize he does have a, a, a good perspective. He, uh, Dan Ingram emailed him today to ask him what his thoughts were on the death of the Pope. And I thought his response was, 
particularly insightful, so I thought I would read it to you. And of course, with the angelic conflict raging, I would misplace my glasses, so we'll work through this. He writes, I grieve for John Paul II, who... Let me see here. I'm not doing well at all. Who gained the whole world, but forfeited his soul. No one can actually judge a person's heart, but we're called to make certain evaluations on the teachings of every man. Let me just add a note. You can't ever tell, but somebody may have at some instant or point in time in their life trusted in Christ alone, had faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. But when you're evaluating a ministry, when you're evaluating what someone teaches, you have to go on the basis of everything that they've said in public, every public writings, public statements, what they have espoused throughout their whole life. And on the basis of that, you can't even speculate that this individual was saved. There's absolutely no evidence anywhere that he ever understood that salvation was by faith alone in Christ alone. That doesn't mean, I'm not saying he's not saved. There may have been that moment somewhere, and Mike would agree with that. But on the basis of what he espoused, on the basis of what he taught, on the basis of what he wrote, he never, ever understood the gospel. Mike went on to write, he said, year after year, he was the most loved and admired man in the world, but because he was blinded by the prince of this world, he never saw the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Had he been a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, he would have been hated and persecuted by the world. I also grieve for the many who have been deceived by this Pope and his religion. It breaks my heart to see so many professing Christians who cannot discern truth from error and genuine biblical Christianity from its counterfeit. If ever there was a more important time for faithful servants of our Lord Jesus Christ to take a stand for the truth, it's now. The religious corruption of Rome has been a constant, uh, on constant display for the whole world to see. The splendor and pageantry has been extraordinary. Thousands of deceived people have stood in long lines to uh, venerate a dead man with a rosary in his hands and a twisted crucifix by his side. Bishops and cardinals are now encouraging Catholics to pray to and for this dead pope whose body is constantly being blessed with incense and holy water. They must not be aware that praying to anyone other than God is an abomination to God, according to Deuteronomy 18.11. The bizarre veneration and adoration of this man has been unprecedented. It appears no one is concerned with the words of Jesus who said, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, Luke 6.26. Tragically, the Pope has had greater success in deceiving the world since he died than during his 26-year pontificate. The global uh, media has become his mouthpiece and willing partner in spreading his perverted theology. Through nonstop television coverage, the Pope's church has become the world stage. The The princes have been masquerading in their purple and scarlet robes and ministries of righteousness. They have cast a spell over the TV audience with the splendor of their rituals and the pomp and pageantry of their pagan traditions. The magnificence and grandeur of this current religion, of this aberrant religion, 
has bewitched much of the gullible world into believing this is what Christianity is all about. Evangelical leader, the evangelical leaders, or few evangelical leaders, will speak about the Pope's false gospel that, sh- uh, that shut the kingdom of heaven to those who wanted to enter. They refused to acknowledge that he was condemned by God's word for preaching another gospel, according to Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Instead, they are saying that since he believed in Jesus, he went directly to heaven. His salvation has been guaranteed by some evangelicals because of his suffering, goodness, and holiness. There are times in the lives of evangelicals when our faith is tested. This is indeed one of those tests, and sadly we see many failing the test by capitulating with enemies of the gospel. Could it be that they are seeking the favor and approval of men rather than the approval of God? Many are praising John Paul II for being a great spiritual leader. But why give such honor to the head of an apostate church which keeps over a billion people in spiritual darkness? While he never claimed to be God, he took pleasure in being addressed with titles reserved for the triune God. He usurped the title Holy Father from God the Father, the head of the church from the Lord Jesus Christ, and the vicar of Christ from the Holy Spirit who Jesus promised to send in his place. The Pope said he represented Jesus Christ, yet he lived in stark contrast to the Savior who had no place to lay his head. He denied Jesus was man's creator by teaching evolution as true. On several occasions, he denied that Jesus was the only way to the Father. When he addressed Muslim leaders, he said, There is a common spiritual bond that unites us. In 1999, he denied the blood of Jesus was the only purification for sin by awarding a plenary indulgence for anyone who quit smoking or drinking alcohol. John Paul is acclaimed as a great moral leader, yet he failed to uh, discipline American bishops for tolerating the wicked sexual abuse of deviant priests. One thing is certain, the Pope knows the truth now. I believe he is experiencing what the rich man in Luke 16 endured. Both of them dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in splendor every day. When the rich man died and found himself tormented in the flames of Hades, he begged the father to send someone to tell his family the truth so they would repent and not end up in the same place. The Pope may now be making the same request. The passing of John Paul II opens a tremendous opportunity for Christians to talk about spiritual issues. We must speak the truth in love and proclaim the gospel with clarity and completeness. We must also earnestly contend for the faith against everything that stands opposed to God's word. May God help us be faithful in these times of great deception and compromise. And then he closes the letter. So I thought that was certainly insightful and something to remember that While we look at the television again and again and see the world praise this individual, the doctrines that he taught, aside from whether or not he was actually saved, the doctrines that he taught, espoused, believed, and promoted are doctrines that lead people to the lake of fire. And we dare not forget that. Okay, let's open our Bibles to... uh, Well, just hold on. We'll get there eventually. I want to review a little bit. The last two weeks we talked on a subject of tithing as it comes out of the Genesis 14 passage where Abraham gave a tithe of the spoils from his victory over the four kings to Melchizedek. 
And that, that passage and that concept of tithing is one that, that has been abused because it's been misunderstood, as we pointed out in the last lesson, that tithing was a taxation system under the Mosaic Covenant. There never, that the tithing of Abraham and the tithing of, I, uh, of Jacob that are both mentioned in Genesis were voluntary and that those tithes did not have anything to do with uh, following some mandate from God. So they related to a free will decision, a grace giving on their part. And that's in contrast to the tithes that were demanded under the Mosaic Law. And we saw that things changed with the church age. So I want to review with several points to make sure we're where we ought to be. And tonight we're going to focus mainly on the principles of giving in the church age, sometimes called the age of grace. And giving in the church age we refer to as grace giving. And the title for this message is Grace Giving, Generosity, and Gratitude, because that's the issue in understanding the doctrine of giving. By way of review, point number one, prior to the Mosaic Law, there are only two instances where tithe is referenced, where that word tithe is used. One references Abraham in Genesis 14:18 through 20, the passage we've been studying. And the other is a passage I've failed to mention the last couple of weeks, and that has to do with Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, in Genesis 28, verses 20 to 22. This is a situation that takes place at Luz, which at that time is renamed Bethel. And it is renamed Bethel because while Jacob is camped there, he has a vision where he sees the angels ascending and descending, and this is the vision of Jacob's ladder. And it is a time when the Abrahamic covenant is being reaffirmed to Jacob. That's important to understand because the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. It's not based on anything that Abraham did, just like your salvation. It's not based on anything you did. It's something that God freely gave to Abraham. And he reaffirmed that covenant to Abraham's son Isaac and to Abraham's son Jacob so that God becomes the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that, Mose- in that Abrahamic covenant, We know that God has freely promised to bless Abraham. It's not based on any condition. He's promised to bless Isaac, and he's promised to bless Jacob. So that the blessing that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob receive is not a blessing that's based on the fact that they discovered the law of tithing. See, that's what's often taught today. You flip on the television, you run around a number of churches, and they teach this concept called seed faith money. The term seed is never used in the Bible related to money, but it was, it's been promoted since at least World War II by a number of people in the charismatic camp, and it is the idea that if you give a certain amount of money, then God will automatically restore this, it to you ten, tenfold or a hundredfold or a thousandfold. And, and I have one time 20 years ago, I talked to a businessman who gave everything he had to a church because he was convinced that God would give it back to him a hundredfold based on this distortion. And, of course, that didn't happen, and he had to declare bankruptcy, and he was completely uh, uh, disappointed in Christianity and disillusioned, and all because of this, this horrible teaching that is popular today that is called the law of tithes, and it has nothing to do with the Bible. Abraham, remember, is blessed by God, and he becomes one of the wealthiest men in the world 
long before Genesis chapter 14. In fact, he became probably the wealthiest man in the world while he was in carnality down in Egypt. So it wasn't because he discovered some law and because he gave 10% to God, God blessed him and made him wealthy. And the same is true for, for Jacob. Well, here's the passage on Jacob. After the vision of God and the reaffirmation of the Abrahamic covenant to him, we're told in Genesis 28, verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now, he's not really doubting God, but Jacob's not the strongest believer, and he's, he's had uh, a reaffirmation of the covenant, and so that if there, if this were Greek, would probably be a first-class condition. He's pretty sure this is what God's going to do, and so in response to what God has already promised him, he is in gratitude going to give... 10% to the Lord. Now, there's been no mandate for him to give 10% of what he has to the Lord. This is a free will response. It's based on his understanding of grace and his gratitude for all that God has given him. And that is the foundation for moving out of spiritual childhood, is grace orientation and understanding all that God's given to us and responding to that in gratitude. And so that's what we see with, with Jacob. Once again, it's not a mandate. This is before the Mosaic Law. And he's not giving this to uh, the Levites. There are no Levites yet. He's the father of Levi. Uh, he's not giving it to the temple. There's no temple yet. He's not, there's no nation yet. He is simply giving this to God in response to what God has provided for him. So point number one is that prior to the Mosaic Law, there's only two instances where the word tithe is used. Now, in the Mosaic Law, we have several instances. Tithing, and incidentally, a point that I didn't bring out, was the tithing not only related to money. It included possessions, all your sheep, your cattle, your goats, uh, everything from the produce of the field, uh, the, the wine that you produce, everything. You give 10% in kind. So it included possessions, not simply money. Second, uh, this is seen in Leviticus 27, verse 30. Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's, and it is holy. Holy means to be set apart. It is set apart for the Lord's uh, usage. Second thing we see in the Mosaic Law is that the first tithe, that there were three different tithes, and the first tithe supported the bureaucracy of the theocracy. And the bureaucracy of the theocracy were the priests and the Levites, that God is going to provide for the support of the Levites because, unlike all the other tribes, they had no material real estate inheritance in the land. So they got 10% of every, everything, everyone else. Numbers 18, 21 to 23. Third thing about the Mosaic Law, there was a second tithe. First tithe supported the Levites. Second tithe provided for a national celebration of the grace and generosity of God, Deuteronomy 14, 22 to 24. So once again, we see this emphasis on a response to God's provision in our lives, whether it's great or whether it's small. The third tithe, now if you add it up, that's 22%. 
It, so it's not just 10%. It was a 22% taxation annually, and then every third year there was another 10%, so this jacked it up to about 33%. There was a third 10% ta uh, taken that was to support the Levite, the alien, the orphan, and the widow. In other words, this provided something of a safety net for the poor in uh, Israel. But the Mosaic Law didn't, have, didn't recognize just tithing. It also recognized free will or grace giving. Free will or grace giving that was important for the sustenance of the temple and for the people. So you have these two categories of giving. Uh, Proverbs 3, there are several verses in Proverbs that emphasize this. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Notice the emphasis there is from the first. It's not giving the Lord whatever you have that's second class or used. This is, was one of the tragedies that happened in so many churches when they give their cast-offs to missionaries. And, you know, after the hand-me-downs have gone through all the kids, then they send it off to the missionary kids. But the principle from Proverbs is honor the Lord from your wealth, from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And in the Old Testament economy, there seems to be this material, physical connection between your spiritual obedience and material prosperity. Now, that's not true in the church age. For one thing, we're not living in a Christian nation. They were living in a nation that was a theocracy under God. And so God built into this these concrete barometers for self-evaluation. We don't have that today. For one thing, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a completed canon of Scripture. We have so much more. So you can't take a, a principle like this and take it as a promise. And just another point I always have to make when you take a proverb. A proverb is a proverb. A proverb, by definition, is a wise saying. A wise saying means it's something that is generally true but not altogether true. It is not the same as a promise. A proverb and a promise are two different things. A promise is an unconditional statement of reality that's backed up by the integrity of God. A proverb is a statement that is generally true under most conditions, but there may be exceptions depending upon what the external circumstances. Uh, proverbs have to do with living wisely in God's creation according to God's principles. Proverbs 11.24, there's one who scatters yet increases all the more, and there's one who withholds what is justly due but results only in want. Now, let me break that down. The one who scatters is one who is giving. You know, we all know people like this. They're very giving. They're very generous with their time. You know, giving doesn't have to do only with money. It has to do with your, your time. It has to do with your energy. It has to do with your, whatever talent that God's giving you in serving and helping others. And it also has to do with whatever financial resources the Lord gives us. And if you're a person who has that attitude of gratitude and generosity from grace orientation, then it works itself out in all these areas. It's not just a matter of giving, you know, writing checks and giving money to the church. It has to do with giving of yourself and your time in, in many different ways and many ways of which uh, may be unseen by others. So there's one who scatters. This is the person who is the giving of himself and yet increases all the more because as he gives, God is going to supply that which is necessary. That's a principle that's reiterated in a passage we'll look at in Second Corinthians before we're done.
And there is one who withholds. This is a person who's relatively tight, and even though it's justly due, he holds on to it, but it results only in want. And this is the way that God seems to operate. He supplies what we need. Another example of free will giving, which we mentioned last time, was the free will contributions to build the uh, temple in Exodus 25, 1 and 2, and 35, 5 and 21. So the temple was built with free will offerings. People brought their jewelry, which was melted down, various other things that were used in the construction of the temple. Other passages that emphasize a category free will or grace giving in the Old Testament are Leviticus 22, 28 to 23, uh, 2338, 2730, 2730 and 31, Numbers 15:3, Deuteronomy 12:6, Ezra 1:4 and 3:5. Now most of this we've already covered. Just a quick review of three more points. Point number four of review: the National Bank for storing the tithes was in the house of God. They took the tithes to the temple, to the house of God. So when you come to Malachi chapter three and they say take your tithes to the temple or take your tithes to the house. That was taking their ties to the temple. Since we don't have a temple today, you can't apply that to the church without doing extreme damage to principles of interpretation. So point number four, the National Bank for storing the ties was in the house of God, which was simply referred to as the house or the temple. Point number five, God chastised the nation for failing to fulfill their Mosaic Law responsibilities uh, by bringing their tithes to the storehouse. They failed to do that. And in Malachi 3, 8 through 10, God is saying, I'm not going to bless you according to the principles of the Mosaic Law unless you bring your tithes into the temple. That's the point there. He's not talking about the church. He's not talking about church-age believers. He's talking to Old Testament uh, saints in Israel under the Mosaic Law. It didn't even apply to Gentiles. Point number six, in the church age, we're no longer under the Mosaic Law. Christ was the end of the law, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. The law ended when they nailed Jesus Christ to the cross on Golgotha. Furthermore, in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 13, verse 13, in fact, that whole section is an argument that the new covenant has completely superseded and replaced the old covenant, when Jesus, uh, and it, it is stated in Hebrews 8.13, when he said a new covenant, he made the first obsolete, obsolete. When did Jesus say a new covenant? At the Lord's table, when he instituted it, on the night before he went to the cross. This, is, this, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. When he said that, that rendered the old covenant, the Mosaic law, and everything in it, Ten Commandments, that always surprises people. The Ten Commandments are part of a constitution, They're just like, uh, like it's the preamble to our, our, to, our ten, to our constitution, or we could say it's like the first Ten Amendments uh, to be in the Bill of Rights. It, just, it was the whole thing. If you take, get rid of that, you get rid of the whole thing. You can't just come in and, with, a, with a, uh, a scalpel and take out certain elements of the law and say, well, these don't go on, but these do. The whole thing is, is rendered obsolete because it's a covenant. It's a contract. And just like if you go out and you uh, renegotiate the mortgage on your house and, and you get a new interest rate, the old, the old contract's gone. It doesn't apply anymore. It's been made obsolete by the, by the new mortgage. So that's the idea. That means that tithing is gone. 
And then we looked at some key principles. First key principle was that giving, even under the Mosaic Law, was not, last time I said it's not part of the spiritual life. That's not really clear. It's not a, a, a part of the means of spiritual growth. It's not part of the means of spiritual growth. Giving is never a means of growth, just like prayer isn't a means of growth. Witnessing isn't a means of growth. These are the results of growth. The means of growth in the church age are the Spirit of God and the Word of God. In the Old Testament, it was just the Word of God and the promises of God. So you study the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and we grow. As a result of spiritual growth, we learn that we pray and we witness to people and we uh, give to support the local church. These are part of our responsibilities as believers. So that giving is part of the outworking of genuine grace orientation and gratitude in the soul for all that God has provided. So the principle was that giving, even under the Mosaic Law, was not part of the means of spiritual growth, but the outworking of grace orientation and gratitude in the soul for all that God has provided. Second, we said that grace does not mean you don't have an obligation or responsibility to give, but that it's up to your volition. It's still part of what we, our responsibility as believers, but nobody's going to check up on you. Nobody's going to keep a record of how much you give every year. Uh, you don't fill out your, you don't put something in an envelope and drop it in the offering plate, and then that's going to be entered into a computer. I've been to churches where, where this can happen, where the pastor can pull up a program and he can tell you just exactly how much money everybody, anybody in the church has given. We believe in the doctrine of privacy, and nobody's going to track that. It's part of your responsibility, but nobody's checking up on you to see that you fulfill the responsibility. That's between you and the Lord. Third point, grace doesn't mean it's free. See, some people, where along the line, we've got the idea that grace means it's free. Grace doesn't mean it's free. Somebody pays. The Lord Jesus Christ paid for our salvation. It's free to us. When we provide uh, tapes, when we provide... Uh, materials through uh, the media ministry, through Dean Bible Ministries. It's, uh, it's free to the people who order it, but somebody has to pay, and God raises up people who contribute to, to the ministry and to the local church. So somebody always pays, but we provide it at no cost because that's, the, that's how salvation was provided. Now let's look at tithing in the New Testament. First point, I think I got this far last week to the first couple of points. Tithing is mentioned in the Gospels only with reference to the legalistic practice of the Pharisees. Jesus never talks about tithing in a positive way. He only condemns the Pharisees for their false tithing system. They would, they would tithe from their excess. They wouldn't tithe from what they had. They, they followed the, the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. They always looked for ways to get out from paying their, their tithes. Luke 11.42 and Luke 18.12. There was no generosity or grace orientation among the Pharisees. So Jesus only talked about tithing on these two occasions in a way that condemned the practice of the Pharisees. There's no positive instruction in the Gospels or reaffirmation of the Old Testament principle of tithing. Second thing our Lord taught taught that giving was to be a private matter, however, whatever is carried out. And it was between the believer and God. It wasn't to be done in public for show. Matthew 6, 2 through 4. Jesus said, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, 
that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, public approbation. Matthew 6, 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what the right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So it is a matter of privacy. Then we come to the third point, and that is that the New Testament recognizes that free will giving is based on gratitude in the soul and not on the basis of a prescribed value. It's based on gratitude and generosity, not on a set percentage. For example, Luke 21, 2 through 4. The Lord saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. That's not worth much, just worth maybe 50 cents or 75 cents. And that was represented almost all that she had, verse 3. So he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God, but she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, I'm uncomfortable. And I'm uncomfortable because it strikes hard at all of us. You know, I'm no different from you. I get my toes stepped on, too. Here is a woman who is so grace-oriented and so dependent upon the Lord that rather than looking at the fact that, gosh, I can't even pay my bills and I don't have enough to buy food tomorrow, but I'm so grateful to God, I'm going to give what I do have, even if it, I'm not sure where my food's going to come from tomorrow, and I'm going to give all of that to the Lord out of grace orientation, we would say, well, that's not wise. Well, are we trusting God to provide for us or not? She knows that she's going to be provided for, and she's grace-oriented. And see, the way that most people are is they wait till they get to the end of the month and decide how much they have left over, and then they give out of that. Now, that's just the way we are. I mean, we have all go through that, and there's a growth process in the Christian life where you realize that, no, the principle in Scripture is that I make a decision first and foremost of how much I'm going to give, and then I have to budget the rest of it. And I remember when I was, uh, and I didn't like this, but I remember when I first got a job when I was in high school, and I worked, some of you may remember him, Art Wazell, and I worked at Wazell's Exxon Station on the corner of South Brazewood and the South Loop. I got Bruce's job there, too. And uh, there were several of us who worked there. And I came home with my first paycheck, and my dad said, okay, how much are you going to give to the church? And I looked at him like, wait a minute, <laughs> what do you mean? He says, that's your responsibility. We're going to start learning it right now. So that was something that I was taught from the very beginning. And that's a responsibility, and that's a responsibility parents should teach their children is that, that as a believer, if you're part of a local congregation, that's part of your responsibility, that everything that we have comes from the Lord. And we need to respond in gratitude to that, and that involves uh, supporting missionaries, that involves supporting the local church, that involves supporting uh, whatever ministries there may be out there that operate on, on a grace basis. But that's our responsibility. And so that's the lesson from this widow, is she recognizes that giving comes first. And so the Lord makes a point of that and uses her as, a, as an object lesson, that she put in more than all when you look at the percentage, that she gave out of her poverty. 
And Paul also makes that same comment when he talks about the Macedonians, and they gave in support not only of him, but they gave in support of the uh, believers in Jerusalem who were going through a famine, and he, he praises them because they gave out of their poverty. They, they weren't wealthy. They didn't have a lot, but, but they were willing to give of what they, even though they didn't have a lot, and to make a personal sacrifice in order to take care of other believers. So that's part of grace orientation and, uh, and generosity. Okay. The New Testament recognizes the principle that gratitude in the soul and generosity are the basis for giving, not a set percentage. Point number four. Let's go back to uh, Abram a minute. Abram's tithe involved three things. Now, this is important. His tithe involved three things. First of all, he gave of not simply his possessions, but from the recovered plunder that belonged to everybody. Now, just think about that. It says that he came back after winning that victory, and he had all of, all of his goods and the goods from everybody that had been taken by the, by the uh, four kings, and, and he gives of that, 10% of that, to Melchizedek. So he's just not dealing with his own possessions. He's giving of everybody's possessions because he recognizes that God gave the victory for everybody. Second thing he, I want to note on this is that he didn't give a tithe of his possessions, of, of his possessions, but a tithe of everything from the battle. Now, he's got a lot of possessions, but that's not what he gave a tithe of. He gave a tithe from what he got from the battle. Now, there's an italics added in Hebrews uh, 7 that he gave from all of the spoils, and that's in italics. It's an accurate interpretation, but it's not in the original. It just says he gave of all. When you look at the context of Genesis 14, uh, right after he gives the 10% to, to the tithe to Melchizedek, Bera, the king of Solomon, pipes up and says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you, 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 you keep the possessions, I'll take the people. I'll take all the slaves. And so it's clear from the context that we're talking about the plunder from the battle. We're not talking about all of Abram's possessions. And the reason I make that point is that years ago when I was in seminary, I did a one-year pastoral internship at a Southern Baptist church. And, of course, they talked about tithing every week, and, and that always grated on me uh, a lot, and I had to use a lot of uh, humility and teachability. But I would challenge the pastor, and I had to work with a couple of the uh, leaders in the church, and I said, what is the basis for saying that people should tithe today, and they would always go to the Hebrews 7 passage, or the Hebrews 9 passage. And I said, um, Hebrews 7 passage. And I said, what's your basis? And they'd say, well, according to that passage, Abram gave a tenth of the best. I went home, got out my Greek testament, and I said, well, the tenth of the best? It doesn't say that. And I've heard that down through the years. It's one of those sloppy things that enters into evangelical thinking that everybody says and repeats, but it's not in the Bible anywhere. It does not say that he gave from the best. It just says he gave a tithe of all, period. So don't let that interpretation slip into your thinking. Point number five, New Testament principles for giving are located in three, or actually four central passages. I can't count. Four central passages. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and following, 2 Corinthians 9, 4 through 15, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, 
and Luke 21, 2 through 3. Now, we've already looked at the Luke 21 passage. That's the widow and her mites. We looked at the Matthew 6, 1 through 4 passage, and that's the principle of privacy. And I want to briefly look at the 1 Corinthians 16 and the 2 Corinthians 9 passages. 1 Corinthians 16, Paul is going, to, is going to be on his third missionary journey, and he is taking up a collection from each of the congregations of, of financial aid to take back to the church in Jerusalem because they were going through some financial distress. And we get some principles from giving from this. In verse 1 he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. And so it's very clear that he's going to do some teaching about taking up a financial collection. And the first point that we ought to recognize from that is that the Apostle Paul was not afraid to talk about money to the congregation. Now, there are some pastors that they just don't want to. Well, there are other pastors, that's all they want to talk about. You have to draw a balance. It's part of life. And it's a responsibility for every believer. And when the passage comes up, as it has in our study of Genesis, it needs to be addressed because people need to be taught what the Bible says about giving. It's not one of my favorite subjects. I don't like to talk to people about giving uh, at all. And, I, and most pastors that I know don't like to. In fact, I know one pastor, a friend of mine, who just uh, he tries to avoid it as much as possible. And I think that's going too far the other way. We can't let the... the, the wackos in our world that are always talking about money and tithing and putting a guilt trip on everybody cause us to go react and go too far in the other direction to where we never talk about it, never mention it. Uh, you know, we, we're, we're not like the, the uh, churches where the pastor got up one time and told the congregation that, that everything was fine with the building fund. We had all the money we need. That's the good news. The bad news is it's still in your bank account. We don't do that. I was at one church one time where a guy got up and he was starting to talk to the congregation about about giving. He said, "Now, now we're going to start off and and I'm going to I'm going to sweeten the pot here and I've got I've got three brand new crisp hundred dollar bills and I'm going to put those in the plate and everybody everybody else here who'll come forward and match that three hundred dollars let's come on down and put it in the plate." And after a few, I was surprised. Quite a number of people came down and matched that contribution. And then he said, okay, now $200. Who's going to match two? And he worked it like an auction in reverse. And he worked it all the way down to $10. And they said, now all the rest of you couldn't give even, even $10. Come on down and give whatever you can. And uh, this was a congregation of about 250 people, and they took up almost $10,000 that night. Uh, that was quite impressive. You see, legalism pays. I just sometimes, sometimes you just wish you didn't believe in grace so much. But... But we have to talk about this, and, it's, and the Apostle Paul didn't shy away from it. And he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, this is a collection for believers. And the thing is, this isn't talking about the normal monthly contribution to support the local church at Corinth or the pastor there. This is talking about a special collection that had a special purpose for the believers in Jerusalem. 
He says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. In other words, this is something he's been telling all the different churches, that he's going to swing by on the next journey and he's going to pick up this money. Now what does that tell us? That tells us that he believes in planning ahead of time and setting aside the money. In fact, this is a verse that is a foundational verse for understanding the importance of saving for the future. You know, it balances out those people who say, well, we just take one day at a time, and if everything comes in today, we spend it all today. The Lord will provide more tomorrow. Well, there's a certain element of truth to that, but it has to be balanced by the fact that there are long-term projects that you can't meet in a one-time collection or two-time collection, and so there has to be long-term planning. And this is one reason why the uh, founding committee this last week at our meeting decided to take $20,000 out of a, the $86,000, um, what would we call it, savings that we have in the bank, the, the buffer that we have. We're going to take 20000 out of that and earmark that specifically for the future project of buying furniture, fixture, equipment, and fixing up uh, a new place that, that we find as a congregation. And we need to do that. It may be six months before we move in. It may be three months. It may be nine months. We will eventually, Lord willing, find something. And when we do, we're going to need to have the financial resources to do that. And that's part of the challenge to the congregation. Above and beyond the giving for the normal operational expenses of the church, we need to recognize that as a new congregation, we're looking at some long-term capital expenses that, that we have to accept the responsibility for. And that when that comes, we need to have the resources. So we're going to start setting up a separate fund uh, to prepare for that need in the same way that Paul did for this collection for the saints. Uh, he says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. In verse 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper. So we learn two other principles here. First of all, that it was to be regular. As often as you're paid, set aside a certain amount. And that was the system at that time was they usually got uh, paid on a weekly basis, or at least they met each week on Sunday, and so they would set aside a certain amount each week and save it for that eventual time when Paul would come. And then the next clause gives us this, the, the standard for giving in the church age. It's the Greek word, uh, I, left, I misspelled it in transliteration, it's E-U-O-D-O-O, that last omega is a long O, it's pronounced U-O-D-A-O. U-O-D-A-O. And it's the present passive subjunctive, present tense, emphasizes that uh, the, the uh, ongoing nature of the prosperity. Passive voice recognizes that the prosperity comes from the Lord, not from the individual. The subjunctive mood indicates its potentiality. The word uodao uh, means to be led along a good road or a good path. The prefix eu has to do with something that is good or beneficial. We see that in the word eulogy. E-U is the prefix to logos, meaning words. It's saying good words about someone when they die. So U-O-D-A-O has to do with being led along a good road. In other words, it's an idiom for having the road of life go well to be successful. And it expresses the standard for giving, which is proportionality, proportional to God's blessing and your gratitude. 
nobody's going to tell you how much to give. That's between you and the Lord. How grateful are you for what he's done? How has God blessed you? What are your responsibilities uh, in life? And uh, this is the standard. It's between you and the Lord. So it's not uh, to give a 10%, but as you prosper, as the Lord has provided for you. And the purpose is so that no collections be made when I come. Paul doesn't want to take up the collection then because he won't get as much as is needed to take care of the, the believers in Jerusalem if he waits to the time he comes to take up the collection. He wants them to uh, work on this and build up a sizable sum over the next few months. And he did, and he praised them for it. And this comes out in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So point number six, New Testament grace giving follows the same pattern as the old. You have mandated giving in the New Testament in terms of the support of a government or national entity in taxation. And this is clear from Romans 13.6, we're to pay taxes. Just as the Israelites gave, gave tithes to support the divinely ordained system under which they live, so we're to give pay taxes to support our government. This is, this is biblical. And then there's free will giving, and that is giving to support the local church, giving for missions. So we're to give to the Lord whatever we purpose in our heart, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that word for cheerful has the idea of being generous or grace-oriented. It's on the same pattern as the Israelites gave out of their hearts to the Lord from all that they had in order to build the temple. So the principle there is the Lord always loves a cheerful and sacrificial giver. 2 Corinthians 9.5, Paul says, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort or to challenge the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand. Notice how there's thoughtfulness and planning in the giving. It's not something that's just random. It's not something that's just based on a need at the moment. As someone who's been involved in a number of different uh, nonprofit organizations and different ministries, I, there's two types of givers that I've noticed. One of those who give same amount every week, every month, you can count on them. God bless them, that you need them. Then there's others who are, I call them sort of go-to guys. You know, they, they just tell you, call me anytime you need anything, I'll be there for you whatever it is, and that's great. You get a big project, you need a computer, you need a sound system, they're there for you. But often the guys who are the go-to guys don't understand how important it is to just be able to count on a certain amount of money every month to run the ministry. But you really need both, and God provides both ways. And it's, just fasc it's fascinated for me for years to watch how God supplies in various different ways through different spiritual gifts and different, different ways that people give. But this passage is emphasizing that planning ahead of time. Uh, prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it might be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Notice the emphasis on generosity. And one other point, we're talking about giving. Once that check or dollar bill or $20 bill, whatever it is, leaves your hand, it's the Lord's money. Now, you may be giving it to West Houston Bible Church or Dean Bible Ministry or Chafer Seminary, and how they spend it is between them and the Lord. You don't have any right to come along and say, well, I gave you $1,000 for this, and you didn't really use it the way I wanted you to. 
Well, that's between them and the Lord. If you want to come along and say that later, you didn't give it to them. You had strings attached. You don't understand grace either. I learned that lesson when I was in college. I was sitting in a church in 1971 that went through a split, and a man in front of my parents turned around and said to my dad, I've put too much money into this church to leave. I want to make sure it's spent right. And I thought, you don't understand grace. It ain't your money anymore. Once it leaves, it's, you know, if you want to support a ministry, support the ministry. They're going to, trust me, there's not an organization around that's going to always make decisions the way you think they ought to be made. But that's between them and the Lord. The idea is if you're going to support that ministry because they're promoting what you believe in and you believe they're right, and that's what you're, that's what you're supporting. Verse 6, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully, bountifully will also reap bountifully. See, this is that principle that we ran into in Proverbs that the person who is generous of spirit is going to be provided for by the Lord, especially if you have the gift of giving. And the person who is a tightwad, who sows sparingly, is going to reap sparingly. It, 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 Paul refers to this as a gnomic principle. That means that this is an ongoing truth. Verse 7, he says, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart. It's between you and the Lord to make a thoughtful decision as to how much you're going to give and implement that in terms of your own budget and in relation to how God has prospered you. Not grudgingly nor of necessity. It shouldn't be guilt motivated. Now, you know, that's an interesting thing. Sometimes when we study Scripture and the Scripture says you ought to be doing something, we feel guilty because we are guilty. And that means sometimes we say, yeah, I'm not doing what I ought to be doing. I need to change. That's what I call legitimate guilt. You, you, the Scripture says do X, and you know you're not. And you go, well, okay, I need to be obedient. That's that principle of correction and reproof in, in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. But what, what guilt motivation is is when you tell sob stories and when you keep passing the plate, when you do all kinds of things which are manipulative for people. And that has no place whatsoever in a local church. I believe just let your needs be known. You don't, don't have to necessarily put a dollar value on them. Just mention th- certain things that are, that are needed. And uh, sometimes just, just take it to the Lord, and He's going to provide. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. Verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, This is the foundation. God in His grace takes care of us. If we are living in obedience to Him, God is going to, God's grace is always going to provide for us. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things. And I was looking at this in the Greek today, and that is, I mean, Paul really wanted to impress somebody, uh, impress this all, all, all. It's panti, pantote, pasan. If you notice that P-A in each of those words is the root of pas in the Greek, which means all. And so he's saying, uh, in all things, always, in every work, all, all, all. Threefold use of that word to emphasize the totality of the sufficiency of God in providing for us. 
you always having all always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work god always supplies the resources i am convinced of that in years of ministry years of living on the basis of just praying for the lord to supply that god supplies the resources for his ministry and if he doesn't then that's because god is directing uh directing you in a certain way uh, in, in terms of his will. Verse 9, As it is written, He has dispersed abroad, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. In other words, God is the basis for everything given to us. Giving is the church age is a matter of grace. It's not based on tithing. It's not based on some system of percentage giving. It is based on two principles, gratitude and generosity. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things this evening and to be challenged once again with what your word teaches about all that you provided for us, the sufficiency of your grace. And, Father, may we be mindful of, of all that you've been provided for us and be thoughtful about our own gratitude uh, toward you for everything that you have given us. And we continue to pray for this church, this congregation for our needs as we are just being established in this early stage and all the many challenges before us. Father, we know that you will supply all the resources, and it's our responsibility to rest and trust in you. Father, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.